This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The Health Report with me, Norman Swan, coming to you from Gadigal Land. And first up, how do you know if memory lapses are just a memory lapse or something more worrying, such as the early signs of dementia and Alzheimer's disease in particular. The condition is called mild cognitive impairment, or MCI. About 7 or 8% of people in their 60s have MCI, rising to 1 in 4 people in their 80s. So as more people hit their ninth and 10th decades, the numbers with mild cognitive impairment will rise too. The pressure on the healthcare system is going to be enormous, which is why a group of experts have come together with recommendations about detecting, assessing and looking after people with MCI. One of the authors is Associate Professor Michael Woodward, who's Director of the Memory Clinic at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. Welcome to the Health Report, Michael. Greetings, Norman. What are the symptoms of MCI that might cause concern and tell you that it's MCI rather than just cognitive decline? It's significant memory problems, repeatedly forgetting what we've been told or leaving items on or open. These are more significant than just occasionally leaving your keys somewhere and forgetting where they are. Is MCI early Alzheimer's? In many people, it will become Alzheimer's disease in the dementia stage. About 10% of people with mild cognitive impairment move on to the dementia stage of their illness every year, and about 60% of those is Alzheimer's disease. So many people will already have Alzheimer's pathology, but not yet in the dementia stage. Around about 20 or 30% will not ever develop more significant cognitive disorder, but MCI itself is a diagnosis, and we do need to accurately diagnose it to know how to manage it. No, we're not going to get through all six of your recommendations, but let's start with the tests and you do recommend scans. Yes, it's good for most people to have at least one form of brain scan. CAT scans don't cut the mustard. We need something a bit more accurate. An MRI can be helpful. We can now get a what's called an FDG PET scan covered on Medicare and that's very helpful in working out if there's underlying Alzheimer's or other pathology causing the MCI. When is it important for a GP to refer? GPs should refer when they have a patient who is quite concerned about their memory and when they do a basic screening test that shows, yes, there's something going on there. The test we recommend is called the the MOCA, but there are other tests that can be equally useful. Now, you do talk about mitigation and the sort of things that the GP could work with a person on, such as medications, lifestyle, air pollution, heart disease and so on. Just give us a quick sense of what you can do to reduce the effects of MCI or reduce its progression? So we should all be living our life as if we're going to have or or might have mild cognitive impairment because there is such a high risk and that means we should make sure we're getting enough exercise, 40 minutes of exercise five times a week, a bit of huffing and puffing, not just a gentle stroll. We should eat a Mediterranean-type diet, plenty of green leafy vegetables and fish and not too much fat, not too much sweets. We should make sure we keep our brains stimulated, do something every day for about 30 minutes and also keep our social networks active. Make sure we don't withdraw from our friends, our family and our community and also treat depression and treat deafness. And you talked about air pollution. Yeah, that's interesting. That's shown up consistently as a risk factor for mild cognitive impairment and for dementia. Now, we can't easily move our home, but uh, we can do certain things to reduce the risk of being exposed to air pollution. And deafness is about social isolation. Not just that we're not hearing and therefore you know, having trouble understanding what's being said. Our brain is not being stimulated by noise. And how safe are anaesthetics when you've got mild cognitive impairment? We don't say avoid anaesthetics, but we say that don't have unnecessary anaesthetics because there is some evidence that 
we can be worsened in our cognition after a general anaesthetic in particular. And if the anaesthetist knows that we already have mild cognitive impairment, they can make efforts to ensure that the impact of the anaesthetic is not as great as it might otherwise have been. Now, when I did my Four Corners on dementia, one of the things that was said, I think probably by you and by Henry Bradati, one of the other authors on the report, was that really people need multidisciplinary assessment in memory clinics. Do GPs in Australia have the right backup to get people properly assessed? There are certainly enough memory clinics around to see people at the moment. Ideally, a multidisciplinary memory clinic, in fact, where I am right now, we have pharmacists, neurologists, uh, uh, imaging specialists, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, access to speech pathology. That's the gold standard service. We might have to rely more, however, on imaging and less just on the multidisciplinary approach if we do get a swathe of people coming through because we are now getting drugs that are truly disease modifying. So the process would be you've got mild cognitive impairment or a strong family history, you find something on, on the brain scan that might qualify you for one of these drugs. Should, in fact, these drugs be as um, effective as promised? I mean, at the moment, it's just a press release. Absolutely. And that's where these mild cognitive impairment guidelines or recommendations that have just been published come in. They give the general practitioner in particular a swathe of approaches to the person. But of course, the other thing is we need more research, particularly research in people who are at risk of mild cognitive impairment, people who have amyloid building up in their brain, but haven't yet even got symptoms. Michael, thank you. My pleasure. Professor Michael Woodward is Director of Aged Care Research at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. You're listening to The Health Report. Next, a study which flips previous thinking about Alzheimer's disease upside down. Removing the bad stuff from the brain may be the wrong approach, or at least not enough, because the so-called bad stuff may also be doing good. Does your head in. What I'm talking about is a protein called amyloid in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. The lead researcher was Alberto Espe, who's professor of neurology at the University of Cincinnati. Thank you for inviting me. Now, we've done a lot on the health reports and I've done a bit on television on this issue of amyloid and Alzheimer's disease. And I must say some of this, a lot of the coverage has been quite sceptical because every time you seem to introduce a new drug to remove the amyloid plaque from the brain, it doesn't seem to work, although there's an indication maybe there's a new trial that might have shown some benefit. And now you in this study have shown yet something else that's contradictory that does your head in a little bit because many people talk about amyloid as if it's like cholesterol and if only you reduce the amyloid like you reduce cholesterol you're going to reduce Alzheimer's disease but if the results of your research are right that may not be the right approach. Yeah that's absolutely correct. The amyloid framework has really been one-sided. We figure well here are these things that look really bad and why don't we just think they are the cause of the problem. But once you start looking at the story from the two sides of the protein aggregation process, then you realize that what we're calling the cause of the problem, the amyloid plaques, is really one end of the process. And the normal protein is at the other end. So in other words, what you've got is abnormality on one side, the plaques, just to reiterate what you've just said. And on the other side, You've got this protein called amyloid, which has a function in the brain, which nobody's too sure about, and it's circulating in your blood, and it's doing stuff which may actually be doing you good, which is what you discovered in this study. Right, and the caveat here is that we think that these proteins are actually in the brain, mostly. There probably is a way to measure them in blood. 
we measured them in the spinal fluid, which is what surrounds the brain. Now, your study wasn't just into anybody who might develop Alzheimer's disease. It was a specific group of people who had a genetic susceptibility. Yeah, that's correct. And I just want to make sure that one aspect is very clear, and that is that most of us have amyloid in our brains as we age. But very few of us with amyloid go on to develop Alzheimer's disease, the condition in which there is dementia. However, the levels of the normal protein are going to be invariably low. With dementia, the amyloid beta levels are already low. And so that's uh, very important. And that part we've just neglected in the trials. The trials that you have uh, mentioned at the beginning are trials that are aiming at reducing the concentration of the plaques in some cases, in addition to reducing the concentration of the plaques, some of these drugs reduce the concentration of the precursor, the soluble normal protein, the A-beta-42, which is already low to begin with. And of course, in those cases, patients have worsened. And the reason that they've said that they're low, so it's not a new observation, is this, oh, well, it's being chewed up by the plaques. So the plaques are sucking it out of the brain, and that's why it's low. They've kind of just cast it off. It's not a serious issue because well, why wouldn't it be low? But your research, to some extent, contradicts that. Yeah. The plaques today were normal proteins yesterday. And so that's what's perhaps best to think about. Uh, plaques aren't there to begin with. Plaques are the end result of normal proteins, which are in a dissolvable, we call them soluble state. They aggregate into an insoluble, and that's the amyloid plaques. So amyloid plaques are really the end life, the end of the life of a protein, of a normal protein. And we have assumed that the minute the proteins turn into plaques, they turn toxic. So the alternative is that the moment the proteins turn into amyloid plaques, they can no longer function. In fact, that is what we tested with our study. Now, your study was into people with a genetic propensity to Alzheimer's disease. And I mean, just to jump to the finding, the finding was these people had a strong genetic tendency to develop Alzheimer's disease. But in fact, those whose proteins remained high, in other words, the soluble proteins that hadn't yet gone into the plaque, that when their levels were high, that was protective against dementia. Absolutely. That's exactly right. So even though the individuals that had a mutation were predicted to have dementia, those that continue to generate levels of the normal protein, the A-beta-42, at a high level, remained normal over the span of the study, over a three-year period. And that is particularly interesting because we focused on individuals that already have plaques. And in our narrative, those of us who have plaques, including those who have mutations, are in what we refer to as the Alzheimer's continuum. They already have the disease, even if they may not have any symptoms. So in, in this situation, we were interested in understanding, is it possible that the plaques in a context of a normal cognition is possible because the levels 
of the protein remain high. And now, that's exactly what we found. Now, this is a specific group of people who've got a genetic propensity. Is there any indication that those of us who develop amyloid plaques as we age yet don't develop dementia, that we too have high levels of the soluble protein, the soluble amyloid? Absolutely. We, in fact, did that study last year. So we published a similar analysis last year in a cohort of individuals that already have plaques, but they had no mutations. And we essentially tested the same hypothesis and, in fact, found what we have found in the genetic cohort just the same. What makes the genetic study more poignant, though, is that in our concept of what Alzheimer's is, we have often come into the idea that amyloid must be toxic because we have people who have a mutation that, quote, overexpress amyloid. And while that is somehow true in the sense that amyloid formation in most genetic, not all, but in most genetic causes of Alzheimer's is definitely overexpressed, well, that is overexpressed because it's depleting the normal protein. So these plaques also come from normal protein. And the more plaques a brain makes, the lower the levels of the normal protein. And that's irrelevant. It turns out that losing more of that is quite consequential. And that part has been missing from the research in Alzheimer's and, of course, from the therapeutic endeavors. Two questions. The first one is, do we know what the soluble protein does in the brain? What we do know is that a beta 42, the normal protein is a neurotrophic factor. It allows the neurons to grow. Uh, to grow, to be able to communicate with one another, etc. So it really is important. Do we know what factors keep your soluble levels of amyloid up? That's a great question. I don't think we have an answer. We don't know. It is possible that there may be an effect of the environment, the, the diet, etc. But we honestly don't actually know what that might be. And what about medications to raise it? So that's actually what we are working on. There are non-medications that raise it. And that is in part because there really hasn't been, as I mentioned earlier, much of an interest on the other side of the story. The fact that proteins are being depleted, are being consumed in the process of transforming into amyloid plaques. And with colleagues at the Karolinska Institute uh, and the University of Eastern Finland, we are already working on how to replenish the levels of the normal proteins using an intravenous infusion. What's interesting, though, you mentioned at the beginning that there may be an exception in the anti-amyloid treatments that could be conceivably giving rise to a modest but significant cognitive benefit, and that's lecanemab. Now, the phase 2b, which is the study that inspired the current one, even though that study was negative, what it did show, though, is that this drug is capable of raising the levels of the soluble, the normal protein. So it'd be fascinating to know what the magnitude of increase of the normal protein is, and perhaps it really goes above compensation defined in our studies. Neurodegeneration is really a process of loss. We lose everything, neurons, glia, proteins, everything. It's literally a loss, and that's why the brain shrinks. And somehow in our narrative forever, we've held on to the idea that it is a problem of gain. And the gain is that of toxicity of proteins. And it's very unfortunate because we love narratives in which there is a villain. And of course, toxic protein gives us the reason to go and strike it as an enemy. 
And unfortunately, we have never done anything good with it. And so this study hopefully will allow us to think that, yeah, what's most important in neurodegenerative conditions, Alzheimer's in particular, is that there is a loss and that perhaps if the loss is less, if individuals are able to sustain a level of protein above a certain compensation threshold, they remain normal. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Norman. Thank you for inviting me. Alberto Espo is Professor of Neurology at the University of Cincinnati and the same principle may apply, he thinks, to Parkinson's disease and other neurodegenerative diseases of the brain in terms of the proteins that are involved in them. Last year, Tegan had some fun with sounds that make you tingle. What you just heard was a ring pool and a can of fizzy drink, scissors snipping, beans being poured into a bowl, scrunched packaging, hair brushing and the spray of shaving cream. You might wonder what all that has to do with your health. Well, here's Tegan to fill you in. So it's all to do with ASMR, Autonomous Sensory Meridian Response, which if you've been on the internet in the last five years, you've probably heard of. There's people who say they get tingly in a good way when they hear certain noises and some people like whispering noises too. People were seeking them out on places like YouTube and at first it was a bit of an online kind of thing, but there's now a body of evidence that's growing that, yes, it's a real phenomenon that happens and it actually might be useful for people with anxiety. So I spoke to a UK researcher who's just published a paper about this. Her name is Joanna Greer from Northumbria University. It's a hugely popular phenomenon. There are thousands of YouTube videos being created, which are being accessed by thousands and millions of people who are really interested and enjoy ASMR. The people who are experiencing it typically are the people who are seeking the sensation out. Did we know that this existed before YouTube existed? Certainly, if you look through history, it is reported. There is some literature, I can't remember the specific book from the 18th century, actually described, a novel actually described the sensation. Obviously, now because of the online era, it's becoming very popular and news is spreading very rapidly. But it doesn't just have to be online. I've heard reports of people who experience this for years when they go to the hairdressers, for example. So the question is, who can experience it? That yet we still don't know exactly why some people experience it and some people don't. But what we've been able to do with our study is begin to get some information about parameters that might characterise individuals who can experience ASMR. Tell me about the link that you found with anxiety. The link we have is that we're trying to understand more about the kind of traits that might characterise somebody who can experience ASMR. And the link we have with anxiety also links with the personality trait of neuroticism. Whilst it might sound a little bit negative, we all have an element of that. And it's characterised by a greater propensity, possibly for sort of depression and stress. And that also links 
with anxiety. So your levels of neuroticism are fairly stable across your life. What we found in our study was that the participants who were able to experience ASMR had greater levels of neuroticism and greater trait anxiety compared to the participants who did not experience ASMR. What you've got to think about is you have your personality characteristics, which are fairly stable, and trait anxiety is something within yourself. Your levels of trait anxiety is how you sort of are on a continuum. And there might be fluctuations, but in general, that's part of your personality makeup. You then have state anxiety, and state anxiety is how you feel more moment to moment. Before you do something that might cause some kind of anxiety, it's likely that your state anxiety levels will be raised. So what we found for this study was that we have these greater levels of neuroticism and anxiety in individuals who experience ASMR. Their state anxiety was also greater, so their moment-to-moment anxiety was greater. But in this group, their state anxiety was reduced after they watched the ASMR video. We were able to demonstrate, yes, we can understand these traits that might characterize somebody who can experience ASMR, And then we found that this particular group benefited from watching the video. And that might seem fairly sensible. Why wouldn't it be? These individuals seek out ASMR. They enjoy ASMR. What we found was that there were some individuals who had never heard of ASMR before. But when we asked them after the video where they experienced tingles and they had never heard of it before or never experienced it, they got the ASMR tingles. So again, it's showing us that probably more people can experience this than we realize. But where we're linking this possibly with a potential intervention or something that might begin to be considered in general is that obviously what I've talked about are group differences between the ASMR experiences and non-experiences. When we actually just looked at the levels of neuroticism and state anxiety in general, irrespective of the group, whether you can experience it or not, that's when we found that actually levels of neuroticism and state anxiety before watching the video also accounted for reduction in state anxiety. We just look at neuroticism in general and state anxiety in general, we could also see that just those levels accounted for this reduction in state anxiety. And this is where we're suggesting that actually you might not need to experience ASMR to potentially get a benefit. Potentially a therapy. Hopefully, it needs loads more research, obviously, but it's great to think that actually we may now have another tool that we could add. A few years ago, it sort of sounded like it wasn't really well-defined. It was more of an internet thing than an academic thing, but it sounds like that's changing. Very much is changing. The academic research that's now being conducted is gaining momentum, and we're absolutely delighted to see that. We do hope that this particular study might be a stepping stone to help future development of interventions. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for your time. Dr Joanna Greer is a senior lecturer in the psychology department at Northumbria University in Newcastle in the UK. Heart specialists should think more about the psychological health of their patients because poor mental health could be one of the causes of their heart condition. That's the conclusion from a group of Melbourne clinicians and researchers. Take atrial fibrillation, for example. Atrial fibrillation, or AF, is an underdiagnosed abnormality of your heart rhythm. It can cause breathlessness, palpitations, fatigue, and can even increase the risk of a stroke. 
Atrial fibrillation is becoming commoner and there are many causes, from high blood pressure to blocked coronary arteries to post-heart surgery to congenital defects in the heart to excessive alcohol consumption. But despite the long list, there are still some people in whom the cause may not be solely physical but psychological, particularly when it comes to stress. Professor Peter Kistler is Head of Clinical Electrophysiology Research at the Baker Heart and Diabetes Institute in Melbourne and was one of the authors on this paper on atrial fibrillation and stress. Welcome to The Health Report. Thanks very much, Norman. What evidence is there that stress can cause atrial fibrillation? Because I think most cardiologists have resisted this idea and thought it was a myth. Yeah, I think that we've been aware of the relationship around stress and cardiovascular disease for a long time. I was actually having a look at a paper published in 1975, in fact, uh, that looked at the relationship between um, stress and hypertension and looked at yoga to reduce um, blood pressure. I suppose the challenge in medicine is finding an accurate tool to measure stress and I think that's part of the reason why it's been resisted somewhat. So what's the mechanism then? So you've got this arrhythmia, I mean the atrial fibrillation is the top of your heart kind of quivers and you don't get coherent messages going to the bottom of your heart and therefore the heart beats can be quite fast and irregularly. Why would stress induce that? So I, I suppose just firstly to define stress, essentially it's the perception that there are internal or external demands that exceed one's ability to, to cope. And I suppose we can think about acute stress and that classic flight-fright response. So if we're startled in some way or stressed, it stimulates what's called our sympathetic nervous system to react. And part of the way it reacts is it actually increases heart rate, dilates our pupils, we breathe faster, um, we get a little bit sweaty. So that's the sort of acute stress response. And just that stimulus can be enough to trigger arrhythmias. It actually also increases uh, the thickness of the blood. It modifies the immune capacity of the body. And so there's a whole host of ways. And then the chronic stress element actually leads to poor lifestyle choices. And we think that's the other way that... This is where you feel out of control of your life and, and like under pressure. You don't pressure. exercise, you don't sleep, you make poor diet choices, you gain weight, and that certainly feeds into AF and high blood pressure. So you would say that this needs to be listed as a cause. Now, if it's a cause, does stress reduction work in controlling atrial fibrillation? Because, I mean, yeah, basically, so you electrophysiologists are into some very invasive treatments, burning the pulmonary yeah. vein and the, art and the atrium with, you know, anyway, we'll go into that on this interview, but, you know, does it save you some of these invasive treatments? There's been one study, actually, from nearly 10 years ago, where they took just under 50 people um, and they followed them for three months and then got them to do uh, yoga uh, for three months. And they actually showed a reduction in number of AF episodes. Also, the coping with the symptoms of AF um, was reduced. But interestingly, overall heart rate came down a little bit. Blood pressure came down a little bit. So that sort of speaks to some of the mechanisms through which, you know, relaxation techniques and yoga might be able to work by modifying this sort of involuntary or autonomic nervous system. And implying what, and implicit in what you're saying is that even if it's not the cause, the anxiety that could be provoked by sudden palpitations could make it worse. Absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of the time we just reassure people that they don't need to call an ambulance and come into the emergency department because they're having an episode of palpitations. Um, so they go into one of these relaxation modes. Now, you're, your advice for cardiologists is to ask 
questions about people's psychological health. Yeah, one of the other points of this this review was really, I think as cardiologists, sometimes we focus too much on the physical symptoms that you um, described in the introduction and don't ask enough about anxiety and depression. And, and when we actually looked at this in a systematic way, one in three people had significant anxiety and depression and actually 20% of people expressed suicidal ideation in the context of their atrial fibrillation. And, you know, by just actively um, addressing these issues and, and by people better understanding their condition, um, you know, can allay a lot of these feelings. And if you're a patient, you shouldn't feel defensive that the cardiologist thinks it's all in your head. No, not at all. It's in your heart as well. Basically, it's all one. Look, Peter, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure, Norman. Thanks for having me. Professor Peter Kistler is Head of Electrophysiology at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne and also Head of Electrophysiology Research at the Baker Institute, which is just next door to the Alfred. And that's been The Health Report. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.